Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that's Johnny Funders in Cold Blood. Johnny Funders in Cold Blood is also the title of the authorised biography of the legendary Johnny Funders, who we all know has, has been the, the guitarist, songwriter, the New York Dolls, as well as a, a wonderful solo career. And, and the Heartbreakers. And the Heartbreakers. Yes, we'll be covering that. <laughs> Nina and Tonia, a huge welcome to you. Oh, hello. Yes, it's lovely to meet everybody. So this is the authorised biography of Johnny, and you knew Johnny and collaborated with him while he was still here for this book, didn't you? While he was still living in this universe, yes, I did. It was back in 1987, a long time ago. And in terms of collaboration, I think Johnny was most excited about choosing the photographs. He was very visual, and also he wrote some very funny subtitles at the time for some of the photographs. And there's an updated version? Very much updated. I updated the book considerably 1992, sadly a year after Johnny died, um, and I incorporated some additional material that wasn't in the first version. So the book grew up as I grew up, I suppose. So you discovered Johnny, New York Dolls and the Heartbreakers as a teen in, in that period? Yes. Well, no, I was a huge New York Dolls fan. Right. From, you know, like everybody in the punk generation, you know, when you read how everyone reacted to seeing the New York Dolls on the Earl Grey Whistle Test, whether it was Paul Cook or Morrissey or yeah. Joe Strummer or Mick Jones, it was a particularly electrifying moment. They were the definitive kind of marker away from the late 60s, really. I think there's a point in every decade where the past suddenly seems passe and the dolls very much signposted the future. So you first started writing in Cold Blood in the early 1980s? I did, yes. It was it was a very different project to what the book originally became. Right. The first prototypes of it were it was going to be almost like with a cartoons of Johnny going through them. I worked on it with my late husband recently passed away and he was an artist but by the time the book actually came out in 1987 it was about three or four years in development before it actually right. happened before it was actually ready to be published johnny originally from the queen's area of the new york district and and, and like many people of his generation it was elvis presley that flipped the switch when he was very young yes it seems to have been he wanted a little kid's guitar, and his sister told me that when he had his tonsils removed, he had a night in hospital, I think he was six or seven, and he entertained all the uh, nurses by singing Elvis songs. So that was probably his first gig. Johnny as well, like again, like many of his peers, the, the British Invasion. I think he was more of a Stones fan than, than a Beatles fan. Right. The book kind of caught up with itself because there's much later information because I wrote a book on the New York Dolls, but Johnny started going to the Fillmore in New York and seeing lots of bands there. And there was an incident where he was in some pub and Keith Richards had been in there and, and left a cigarette packet behind and Johnny grabbed it as a great souvenir, I guess. There's a moment in the book where I think it was... Um around 1969, where, where Johnny and his girlfriend, Janice. Janice, yes, they came over to London to see Tyrannosaurus Rex and to grab as many cool clothes as possible. And according to Nick Kent, 
Johnny's nickname then was um, Mr. Maud. <laughs> and because he was very petite, he could work, get into girls' clothes and was, apparently came back to New York wearing all these gorgeous eye-catching velvet suits because he was a little dandy from the very beginning. He knew how to be a rock star, I think, intrinsically. He was born for the role. Yeah. Again, there's some fascinating aspects in your book that, that I certainly wasn't aware of. And, and that's at relatively early age, uh, Johnny wrote, you can't put your arms around a memory. So this was way before he was recording. Yes, he did. He was influenced by a television programme, the theme tune to it. There's also a hymn that sounds very similar to memory as well. But thinking of it with, I don't, have you ever heard the actress tapes, which is pre the dolls? Yeah. There's a sort of earlier kind of memory, and he's riffing on the thing about feeling alone. So that that thread of abandonment that seems to weave its way through all his work was in evidence even then.
How did the embryonic dolls, was it Arthur Kane linking up with him? It was Arthur Kane thought that Johnny looked really cool, but he attended the same school as Sylvain and Billy Mercia. He was the first drummer. And I just think that Sylvain went into the fashion industry with Billy Mercia. So you had this merging of different influences. But Arthur originally wanted Johnny for his band and traded his bass to give Johnny the main guitar and just gave him that confidence. And he was also spending a lot of time with Sylvain and Billy. They then went went to Amsterdam. And while they were away, the embryonic dolls formed as actress, which wasn't really their name. It just was a kind of thing that a girlfriend suggested at the time. I've heard some of that actress material and you, you've got nascent versions of songs that will come out later, I think. You do indeed, yes. We've been through this before, come out of Sad Vacation, for example. Yeah, so the seeds were planted earlier, but I think lots of artists do that. They're almost like notes for what will be worked on for later. It was more the fact that they were rehearsing in a laundrette. No, it's cycle shop. It was a cycle shop and they were being locked in at night, but we will have to <laughs> start somewhere. And the actress material, was he actually fronting the group? Yeah, he was. He was. But he knew he didn't. Well, at that point, he didn't want to be a lead singer. I mean, I think one of the things about Johnny that people probably don't realise was that he was a very he's shy person in his private life. And so it makes sense that he would start off on bass and he'd have to be prompted to get into the guitar. And the first, the early Dolls gigs, he used to play with his back to the audience. He couldn't turn around and face them. He was so nervous. But he got over that to become absolutely the essence of rock and roll. And the name Johnny Thunders, um, the thunder aspect, that comes from a um, comic book, doesn't it? Yes, there was the Johnny Thunders, hero of the Wild West, which Johnny very much was. And also, I think, the volume aspect, <laughs> which was another name he toyed with before he settled on Thunders. And his guitar did sound thunderous, very elemental and sort of unpredictable.
And David Johansson as a foil for Johnny. That dynamic was very exciting. The whole group, clearly, as well. They had that, you know, when a band is really special, that each person is really integral to it and brings something to the alchemy of it. It never is. A great band isn't ever just about one person. It's the sum of its parts. But, of course, Johnny was the rising star. And that combination, probably around 1972, when things really started kicking up again, but that, including songwriting, where you've got Johnny on the guitar and then you've got David on the lyrics, you know, like Jet Boy, for example. Yes, I mean, it, they gelled once Sylvain and Billy Mercia came back from Amsterdam and they joined the band and poor old Rick Rivitz was asked to leave because he wasn't showing up to rehearsals, apparently. Mid-72, the Dolls had a residency at the Oscar Wilde Room. At the Mercer Arts Centre, yes. I mean, uh, it's interesting because New York was bankrupt, I think, but if you could find it, which the Dolls did, it was very interesting. They worked out, they carved their own niche by playing in all these places that bands hadn't played in before. And the Mercer Arts Centre was exactly what it was. It was meant for the arts, but they came in and they sort of made their mark there and went from playing a smaller room to the much bigger Oscar Wilde room, which had wall-to-wall mirrors, which must have been amazing to see them in that. They were actually getting attention, I think, the Lou Reed, Alice Cooper. Not so much Lou Reed. Lou Reed was a bit of a meanie towards them, maybe felt threatened, because when they came over to do their first tour of the UK, they were supporting Lou Reed at the stadium, or they should have been. Right. And he threw a bit of a hissy bit and said he didn't want them going on, so they didn't do that gig. They must have been deeply disappointed. Jump on 
to london in november 72 that's the tour you're talking about yes with the lou reed thing yeah the tragedy of billy mercier dying as well i mean gosh well yeah it was dreadful and entirely unexpected and it should never have happened and he was terribly young what 20 21 it's no life at all i think that had a huge impact on johnny don't know if he ever really recovered from it and also, I mean, at the the evening that he died, they were, well, their management, Marty Fowl was in London with them, was discussing getting them a deal with the Who's label track and that Virgin had shown interest, all the major labels had shown interest, and just all collapsed because of Mr. Mercier's or the, his death. So they soon, soon got Jerry Nolan? They went back, they kind of carried on for the spirit so I, I guess if they had stopped at that point then Billy's death I suppose would have been all for nothing but yes they then recruited the great Jerry Nolan who had cut his teeth playing in Susie Quattro's band and with Wayne County he'd actually he'd lent his drum set to Billy Mercia in, in the early days as well so there was a there was a, a gig where Billy didn't have his drums so Jerry stepped in and said here use mine so he was the most obvious contender and great drummer really solid yeah so recording the debut album so Todd Rundgren was involved and so how did that work because he's got a a bit of a reputation with has he I didn't know about that can be quite a taskmaster at times well I mean it certainly didn't go down well that attitude with Johnny and Jerry but then they were they were quite an unruly lot and, you know, girlfriends were coming in and girlfriends' dogs were peeing on the equipment and all sorts. They brought all kinds of mayhem with them. I know that Johnny and Jerry always felt that Todd Rungan didn't do the album justice, but in retrospect, I think he did fine. 
I mean, I think it's a great album, the debut album, stands up as one of the classics. And it's possibly also Johnny's inexperience because apparently he kept turning up the volume, turning up the volume on his guitar. And then, of course, it would kind of sound warped. It didn't work. So, <laughs> but anyway, Todd Rungan captured the uncapturable very well, I think. Just some fantastic material, looking for a kiss, for example, really marked a shift when the, the 70s really started to kick into gear. I think so. Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember the review of the debut album and in the NME and Nick Kent had written on it, you know, welcome to the fabulous 70s. And and it was true. They were sort of the, they just smashed down the door of the past and said, we're, we're here now. <laughs> it makes things seem exciting because I, I was 13, 14, and that's when you're most open to new influences. And at that age, the Rolling Stones seemed old to me. They don't now, but they did then. You need to find a group that you feel kind of represents how you feel about life and the dolls were kind of disenfranchised. <laughs> I'm very creative. Johansson's lyrics are great, you know. They spoke a language that nobody else was speaking at that time. There was a real strong connection in terms of, of England and, and coming back over. And, and you referred to it earlier, their now legendary Old Grey Whistle Test appearance and getting that on, on the BBC as well. Yeah. That changed music history. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That was a sort of founding moment of really what would become English punk. Even though the Dolls, I think, were sort of classic rock and roll and R&B, just seeing Johnny doing that sort of bizarre Chuck Berry duck walk was just wonderful with his skull and crossbones on his jacket, which might sound cliched now, but it looked very, just looked fabulous then, and the mop of her, and they're all sort of, had this way of all appearing tottery, and they all moved at the same time, which bands do now, but they didn't then. There was a sort of staticness. Only the lead singers threw themselves around, but all of the dolls kind of moved. When I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. Looking for a kiss Well, won't you tell me why most kids are moving so slow Is it that they just don't have a place to go When the day starts breaking, the sun is gonna shine It's hard to sleep if I'm in trying And all the old ladies, they're all on their way to church You go to church, I bet you will not be alone
Shangri-La's producer in for their second album too much too soon Shadow Morton you could think that that would work really well but oh they went through so many producers it, it was just bizarre I think there was too many factions fighting at that point and I don't know their management perhaps or half of their management because their management was split into two sides wasn't it they had this sort of really serious business suit guys and then you had marty Thau, who'd been there since the beginning but i don't think shadow morton was a great choice in the end because he made it more of like a it's like a show songs album there's not enough of the dolls in there apart from chatterbox <laughs> it's a strange mix of kind of a lot of cover versions on there yeah i know but that's kind of it, it indicates that all was not well with the main songwriting team, which was Johnny and David. And they'd sort of, they were estranged by then. Everybody had sort of gone out in their own orbit and had gotten involved in various habits that had taken over perhaps their lives in different directions. It was, it was, it was such a shame that they were disintegrating at that point because they had enough material, I think, for a third album. They taught a lot, didn't they, including the States? Well, they followed what was the route. They toured all over America, but they could never kind of, you know, Detroit loved them, L.A. loved them, all the sort of hip enclaves loved them. But the great Midwest just couldn't. They were too wild and they looked too provocative, whereas their management team were also looking after Aerosmith. And that's what Aerosmith scored big because... They were still, I guess, masculine-looking enough, even though they were doing their Stones thing, to win those audiences over. But the dolls were just a bit too exotic. And that's something that we haven't touched on. It's just the look of the group that was, in a way, pure rock and roll because it, it absolutely sort of could cause outrage. I think so. They were very much children of their generation. I mean, David Johansson had gone out with um, an actress called Diane Paluski, who was 
in the Andy Warhol film, Trash. And I, I sort of think that the dolls were children of the Warhol generation. So genders are blurring and all the rest of it. It doesn't matter if they were hetero. They dressed just how they wanted to dress. And if anybody said anything, it was like sort of got to them. They were much more conservative times. And I think homosexuality had only become legal in 1969. That's in the UK. And it had been an offence. In America for a man to wear more than I think it's two or three items of women's apparel so that's a scarf and an earring and I don't know a cute belt you could be in prison for that that's shocking to us now so you have to step a band in in the times where they were and yes the dolls did break down those boundaries they didn't give a damn Aside from when David Johansson got pulled into prison in Memphis, that's right, a, a young man in the audience tried to give him a kiss and he was arrested and thrown into prison and he was wearing trousers designed by Norma Kamali, which at that point he said might have been a mistake. But I remember it was it was a group called uh, the Mothers of Memphis. Gosh. And they were they were up in arms that the New York Dolls were going to play there. <laughs> One, two, three, four! read that Malcolm McLaren had come over to New York, but that was the period where the band were virtually over. Is that right? Well, some of them had had to start playing in welfare. It was really not very good. 
and they were strung out and the mainstream managers had sort of floated away. Now, Malcolm McLaren and history says that he was their manager. David Johansson always wonderfully said he was their haberdasher. <laughs> but yeah, he had this <laughs> somewhat crazed idea of resurrecting their careers, which is making them look like they're something out of the Chinese Red Guard with communist flag. And um, this was during the time of the Vietnam War. So McLaren's direction was not perceived well by even some of the band's old fans. And they designed these outfits in that they should all wear red. I mean, it was just <laughs> red vinyl, red paint and leather. They did a gig and then they ended up in the middle of Florida and it was all very dramatic. And David Johansson said, anybody in this band can be replaceable. And Johnny and Jerry just got up and said they were leaving. I mean, people also say, well, by then they were strung out, but they've probably been talking about forming their own band anyway. And at that point in time, the Dolls' music had gone anyway. It was on the doorstep of punk and things were a lot more sort of leaner out with the feather boas and yeah. in with a more street look, although Johnny always looked glamorous. I think that was the thing about Johnny and Jerry. If you met them, you knew that they still had been New York Dolls, just in how they dressed, the clothes they chose. I remember I had on a beautiful pink jacket once, hot pink, and I went to, to see them play in London and Jerry and I was, oh, I like your jacket, blah, blah, blah. So I said, I oh, will swap. But I couldn't work out because he was a big muscular guy. How he could possibly, because he wore my jacket on stage that night, manage to play wearing a tiny, tight girl's pink jacket. But he could and he did with great aplomb. As you were saying, David making that statement about anyone can be replaced, that is literally the final straw. Yeah, that was. They got it. That was in Florida the backwaters of florida all very dramatic they were eating fried chicken at the time they were staying at jerry nolan's mother's trailer park <laughs> and having a chicken dinner this was the last supper i guess <laughs> not an ideal situation really this was the period where richard hell had also left television the coming together of the heartbreakers it was that combination of johnny and, and richard initially Oh, it was always Johnny and Jerry, but they would have thought that Richard looked cool, and he did look very cool. He had that sort of half-starved poet look going on. Even McLaren noticed him and took that look back and clothes held together with safety pins, half inesthetically and half through need. So they got him, and, and then Walter Law as well, who's just great character. He could play absolutely everything, very accomplished guitarist. What was the dynamic between Richard and Johnny? Because obviously Richard left. Well, according to Jerry and Walter, it was Richard sort of hoped to supplant Johnny and get him out of the band. And of course, that was never, ever going to happen. But it was it was the push that took Johnny to be the frontman, really, yeah. which was the direction he'd always been headed in. So by that point, he was ready. He had great stagecraft, but it takes everybody a while to learn. So some footage, it's, I think it's at CBGB's, where Johnny is between Richard Hell and Walter Law, and he's so petite that he's literally having to jump up <laughs> to the microphone because they're about a foot taller than him. And then they got in Billy Rath, who was just what they needed, which was a very steady, straightforward bass player. 
with no ego antics. I met Richard Hell years ago. It was at the Hilton in London. Yeah. I was supposed to be interviewing him for Record Collector. And he was really, really annoyed that I could find beauty in the simplicity of Johnny's lyrics. I mean, he'd really taken this to heart. And at one point he said he was going to hang me out the window by my my ankles. He did settle down and give me a good interview after that. But it was like Richard Hell was about something else. He was wonderful and he made some great music. But was I guess... I don't want to say it was more poetic because I find Johnny's music poetic. It was different. And he wasn't about being a backup personality. Richard Hell was also a frontman, just like David Johansson is a frontman. You have to have a towering personality to do that kind of thing. So that's why all the friction. You're right, though, because when you're looking at the heartbreakers and in terms of those lyrics, Born to Lose is that example. There's a simplicity there, but it is poetry at the same time. Well, it's kind of a classic rock and roll thing, isn't it? To me, it's sort of like Eddie Cochran. You know, it talks from the heart. It doesn't need to have obscure words in it. It is what it is. It's very visceral. And as it turned out, very kind of truthful. Not that Johnny lost, but drugs did do for him.
other thing that I, I always say is, you know, he got some flack from the press over their covering of Chinese rocks. Yeah. But if you listen to the lyrics of that, it just tells you it's grueling. It's not saying, hey, we're having great time sitting out here being high. It's we're having a difficult time getting high. We, My girlfriend's crying in the shower stall. It's like, ugh. It's a very truthful portrayal of junky life, and it doesn't say that it's good. It says that it's bad. Chinese Rocks as a single, it got to number one in the alternative indie charts over here. Was certainly in terms of the UK, they were the Heartbreakers were really adopted by the punk community. Oh gosh, yes, they they really revered Johnny and Jerry because they'd been in the New York Dolls. Yeah, I think Marco Peroni actually said. It was Marco Peroni said that Johnny was the first guy he'd seen wearing a sort of classic biker's jacket. And then everybody else started getting their leather jackets from Johnson's or wherever. A lot's been said about the production of the Heartbreakers album. It wasn't the production. That's as far as I understand. I mean, it's gone on for years and years and years. But it wasn't the production. It was a mixing error. And that's why the poor Heartbreakers probably wanted to bang their heads on the mixing desk because they, they didn't know what was happening or why it didn't sound as good as it should have done, what was happening, and each time it was a mix. Now, I'm sure there's somebody out there that is much more technically minded than me who's going, oh, yes, but, it's this, but it was down to the mix. Even though the person that did it was quite renowned, he apparently had a habit of going out for long liquid lunches and... Yeah, it pulled the band apart. But I think Johnny and Jerry were also so disheartened by what had happened to the dolls that they really didn't want a repeat. And I think Johnny, from that point onwards, was never comfortable in a studio because he knew how badly wrong it could go. What happened in, I've read about, you know, Jerry at one point was no longer in the Heartbreakers and was down as a hired musician or whatever, but ultimately kind of fell up. That was because he was so upset about what he thought was the production. He wanted to have his own go at mixing. And then Walter, I think, went in and they were all, it was like a witch's cauldron. They kept mixing and mixing, but they couldn't make it better because blah, blah, I don't know, but it's what pulled the band apart.
it doesn't seem long before Johnny had a, a solo single out. What happened with that was that he was a hero to a very young and enthusiastic chap called Dave Hill, who just got his own record label, and he was also managing The Pretenders, and he absolutely adored Johnny, and so he put So Alone together around him, got Johnny and his wife and kids a place to live in Soho. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> And so the chaos that was uh, that was Johnny by that point was, you know. But nonetheless, for all of that, I think Solon's the best thing that he did. I think the Steve Lily White's production is beautiful. And Dead or Alive, I think the first single from Solon. Oh yeah, really. It's one of his best tracks, I think. Yeah. And obviously, he's flirting with his own reputation. It must have been difficult for him because that was make or break time, wasn't it? Mm. And just before he went back to the States was when um, Stim Vicious had been arrested for the stabbing of Nancy Spongeon. Right. And obviously Nancy, or not obviously, she'd been in love with Jerry Nolan and actually followed him over to London. So, yeah, it didn't bode well at all. I think Johnny said was was... Because at the same time, Keith Richard was busted in Montreal. So he said something very wryly about, well, Sid got the headlines this week. There's a, a lot of tours. Yeah. He goes back and in order to survive financially, the heartbreakers, although they'd split up, apparently, <laughs> kept doing all these reformation gigs to pay the bills. And there was live at Max's as well, which is, is I think... In the days of pre-internet, all of these things were incredibly important because they let you know that Johnny was still alive and functioning. But on one of these farewell tours, Johnny and the band went out to the Heartbreakers to Detroit and he met Wayne Kramer, who was one of his heroes. Wayne, as we know, was the guitarist in the MC5. So they put Gang War together. Right which was a great, great idea on paper. But at the same time, Johnny's wife left him, took the kids, which was not, I mean, life must have been very tough for them both. So she just left and he really kind of was in a bad way. They were supposed to do a gig at Max's Kansas City. Johnny went and got the advance and <laughs> then told Wayne Kramer and they were supposed to be doing everything half and half. And so Wayne Kramer didn't do that gig. Um, it was filled in by Peter Parrott. He really kind of hit this low where he was virtually homeless. But because he was Johnny, the photographer Marcia Resnick and she had been married to Wayne Kramer, but she took Johnny in and she was working on a series of documentaries about night people of New York. And the guy behind it was a mysterious German guy called Christopher Gerke. And one night, Marcy Resnick hadn't, she'd taken enough photographs, she'd had enough of Johnny, and she said to, she contacted Christopher and said, help me get this guy out of my flat. And Christopher then felt that he could help Johnny, who was a very philosophical, intelligent man, and to see if he could get Johnny back on his feet. That was at the point when I'd started writing the book and Jungle Records were reissuing some heartbreakers materials. So Johnny and Christopher were in London 
and I got to give them the chapters, and that's how the adventure began. And I must explain that pretty much every publisher I went to rejected the book just because it was Johnny. And Neil Spencer, who was like the main editor of The Enemy, sent me this letter saying that why was I even bothering? <laughs> None of the journalists liked him. And Jungle Records kept that letter on the toilet wall for years and years and years. <laughs> There's an element in me which, in the face of adversity, I will kick back. So I just kept going. I had to, and Jungle decided that they would issue the book. The worst thing I enjoyed was being asked to go to Virgin Records that were in Portobello. And I really thought Virgin were going to publish the book. I was really excited. But it transpired that they told me, why was I even bothering? He rather foolishly told me that nobody was going to remember punk, that it wasn't particularly important. So it's a long journey, just like Johnny's journey to London. It took a while, but somehow all the all the roads met.
latter period of Johnny's life, there's a song of his, um, Society Makes Me Sad. Oh, God, isn't it sad? Yeah. Was that him kind of reflecting on where he was in that period? Because, he, you know, he did have his health difficulties. and I think society did make him sad. He was a very sensitive person. Not long before he died, he played a gig for the homeless in Los Angeles. I think had he been able to, he would have done far more in that vein. He felt very clearly for people that were homeless, but also because he knew himself that he was always one step away from being homeless, which is what happened towards the end of his life, tragically. He had nothing left. He got an apartment opposite a police station, I believe, but he just... He just wasn't one for coping. It's a bit like saying, you know, why did Judy Garland or Janice Joplin or whatever keep fusing? Because life was too painful on its own terms for him. Do you think there was an element, even if it's subconscious, of self-medicating? Of course. And most people that end up with hardcore problems are in some very great pain that they can't cope with. But he actually died from leukaemia. And so, yeah, I mean, I've seen the coroner's report and he had all the symptoms of it, yes. Unfortunately, because it was New Orleans, they did, as, as Johnny's sister, Marianne, said, and they actually got a private detective that he was just any junkie John Doe to sort of the New York policemen. So they, they did everything very rapidly. I think what makes him very sad is that there wasn't anybody there to look after him at the very end. Yeah. He was waiting for Jerry Nolan to come out, I believe. He was waiting for Stevie Castle to come out. He wanted to form a band. New Orleans had always been this kind of mecca to him of great music. He really liked what Willie DeVille was doing and Dr. John. And that was how he he envisioned his musical future. But he'd already run out of health and time. He absolutely had exhausted his poor little body. But his legacy as a, a rock music icon, his look, his songs, he's now revered. It's really interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot because I, I wrote last chapter for the revised and updated Ink of Blood because it's been a book in the making for many years and not many people get a chance to do that, to make something a living document always. But I did think about why why is it that some artists have longevity and others have forgotten? You'll see somebody and you'll think, my God, they had three number ones. Nobody talks about them now. And I think Johnny definitely represents something that is gone. It's just a fascinating read and uh, the authorised biography of a, a legendary figure in music, Johnny Funders in Cold Blood. Nina, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and, and share your memories and the life of Johnny Thunders. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Take care of yourself. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye.
to take what's mine I don't want to live in the present I make myself ill at times I'm happy but society makes me scared My past involves my future I have to manifest my destiny If I lose myself I lose what's precious And if there's not something wrong with me There should be But society makes me scared Your society makes me scared Your society makes me
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.